Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, and welcome back. This episode, as you'll know if you read the subject line, is about Damien Pera, the photographer and videographer who we have to thank for many of the iconic images of the Australian involvement in the opening couple of years of World War II. I have to admit, when I started researching Damien, I thought I would have an absolute library full of information at my fingertips. But rather disappointingly, I have to say, finding a huge amount of detail on the man and his efforts during the war has proved elusive. And so I've had to dive into the National Archives online files, and as interesting as those are, it is very time-consuming so I probably haven't included as much detail as I would have liked. But if this episode does pique your interest in Mr. Para, I highly recommend trolling through the archives for yourselves. There are literally hundreds of newspaper articles either written by him or about him, and there are quite a few copies of correspondence from various stages of his service. And of course, if you want to see exactly what the man did, then look no further than Kokoda Frontline, available on YouTube. But before we go back to the beginning, don't forget to pop over to our website, australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, for relevant photos, etc. Like or subscribe, or whatever you do on Facebook and Instagram. Give me a review on iTunes, and flick me an email at amhp.media at gmail.com, like Steve Long did. Don't worry, Steve, I'll stick to short words only, just for you, mate. So Damien Peter Perra was born on the 1st of August 1912 in the Melbourne suburb of Malvern to John Arthur Pera, a hotel keeper from Spain, and Teresa Pera. The family were deeply into cats. In fact, you could call them cataholics. Oh, wait, sorry. They were devout Catholics. Okay, back to the highly professional podcast you're more accustomed to. In 1923, at the tender age of 10, Damien enrolled at Loretto Convent School, St Stanislaus College, in Bathurst, New South Wales, and then in 1929, he went to St. Kevin's College in Turak, back in sunny Melbourne. His interest in photography started early, joining the St. Stanislaus College Photography Club. When he finished school, he was apprenticed to Spencer Shear, and then Arthur Dickinson, where he completed his articles and became a qualified photographer in 1933. It was also at this time that the motion picture was entering its golden age. And for the young lad in Melbourne, these movies were mesmerising and he decided he wanted a part in making movies. So when the opportunity to work with Charles Chevelle, son of one of Australia's greatest World War I generals, Harry Chevelle, young Damien packed his bags and headed to Sydney. His first job was as a camera assistant on the film Heritage, made in 1935. He must have done all right because Chevelle recommended him to National Studios Limited, who took him on for the shooting of Uncivilised, The Flying Doctor and Wrangle River all produced in 1936. In 1940, he was back with Chevelle to film probably one of the first classics of Australian cinema, 40,000 Horsemen, the story of the light horse charge at Bathsheba in October 1917. In a time long before CGI was even conceived of, 
filming 500 charging horses must have posed a bit of a challenge and no shortage of risk for the poor bugger who has to hold a camera while horses are flying past at full gallop. The quality of the cinematography and camera work was on par with the best that Hollywood was spitting out at the time. I've been unable to find exactly what part Damien played in the filming of the movie, but rest assured he's somewhere behind the lens. There are short clips from the movie available online if you want to have a squeeze at what they came up with. In betwixt all this motion picture work, Damien made some home movies and short documentaries and worked as a studio photographer. He directed the photography for a short film called This Place Australia, providing the backdrop to poems by Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson. While working on these projects, he developed his own style and ideas on exactly what made good movie footage. But you'll notice that 40,000 Horsemen came out in 1940, and a little thing called World War II was underway by that stage. Ferrer had built sufficient reputation as a photographer that he was employed by the Department of Information as an official war photographer, and before the film's release, he was on his way to the Middle East with the second AIF. Ferrer was on board the HMS Ladybird during Australia's first action of the war, the Battle of Bardia. He filmed the bombardment of the city, showing the sailors loading and firing guns, explosions in the city, as well as just some general on-board life. You may think that surely in Australia's first infantry attack of the war, the great Damien Perra would be down there with the troops. But keep in mind that at the beginning of the war, he was just one photographer among a few. And the honour of accompanying the troops was given to a man who had already built his reputation as a wartime photographer, Frank Hurley. Hurley had captured some of the most evocative images of Australians in the Great War. Or there were those, including Charles Bean, who felt that his use of composite photography, basically combining a number of photos to create a more stylized image, failed a bit on the integrity stakes, leaning more to the artistic than the documentary. If you wish to see Perra's Ladybird footage, then lob over to the Australian War Memorial website, type F01061 into the search field, and you should be sweet. Damien's first foray on the ground was at the Battle of Tobruk. Not the siege, but the first Battle of Tobruk where the port town was captured by the Australians. The memorial reference number is F01063. It shows a fair bit of footage, but by far the best bit is around the 1 minute and 50 mark. Film opens with a commanding officer speaking about the upcoming battle. He waffles on for a bit, and then, at a minute 46, the officer seems to finish talking and then, obviously thinking of something else to say. He quickly says, um, no, I haven't finished, and then it cuts to a scene showing an artillery shell exploding in front of some Australian gunners. Obviously, Perra felt that, despite what the officer said, he was, in fact, finished. The footage then goes on to show the aftermath of the battle. It's not until three days later that Perra shows what would become almost his signature style. During the attack on Derna, Perra filmed C Company of the 2nd 11th Battalion in its role throughout the fighting. Where most motion picture cameramen of the time were content to sit back in the position of safety and film the action from a distance, he felt that approach didn't do justice to the men doing the fighting. Perra wanted more. He wanted to show the fighting men as they actually were during the assault. He wanted to capture their faces. Obviously, to do that, you have to be in front of them, or at least alongside them. Just as obviously, this meant the bloke carrying the camera has to be where the bullets and shells and such are being thrown in their general direction. Film number F01064, I promise I won't be putting these references all through this episode, is the footage taken through that attack. The second scene shows them in advancing, 
and you'd be forgiven for thinking that it just shows troops walking across the desert. The rifles are slung, the men appear to be in no distinct formation, and are very casually having a stroll. The four stretcher bearers behind the troops is the only real indication that this is actually a battle. It then jumps forward to a couple of minutes later, and there's no doubt they are in action. An Italian artillery shell explodes in the distance, and the troops are sheltering behind a small bank, bayonets fixed. And Damien Pera is right there amongst them, filming it all. The other thing I find interesting from this footage is that he concludes every aspect of the army that he can. There's the troops advancing, officers observing, logistics men throwing cans onto trucks, and the trucks moving forward. He obviously felt that it was important to capture it all, not just the juicy action bits. He even thought the flyboys were worth capturing on film, joining a Royal Air Force bomber crew during an air raid. Keep in mind that the British had far from established air superiority at this stage, so there was still a fair to reasonable chance of this bomber being shot down with Pera on board. But he felt it was a risk worth taking in order to film all the aspects of modern war. After the capture of Tobruk, the AIF continued on to Benghazi with Damien in tow. But then things became a bit more challenging. The 6th Division was heading over to Greece for that doomed campaign, while the 9th took over in Libya. While a bit later on, the 7th Division went to fight in Syria. What's a diligent young photographer to do? Choose one and stay with them? Not on your life. In April, he covered the Greek campaign, and in June-July, he popped over to Syria. And while moving between the two, he took time out to capture a bit of film during the siege of Tobruk in May and June. He was a busy lad. All this footage is on the War Memorial website, and I really do recommend having a look through it. It would be better if it had sound, but these were the limitations of the time. Even without sound, though, they do give a fantastic impression of the conditions facing the troops on each of these fronts. Now, obviously, Damien wasn't taking all this footage for his home movie collection. He was gathering it on behalf of the Department of Information for screening to the general public. He soon became well known for the newsreels he was providing. Remember that the general public had friends and relatives over there, and this was their first war where footage of cinema-level quality could be viewed by those left behind. None of those grainy films with men moving at unnatural speeds, but a clear vision at normal speed. It must have been watched with mixed emotions. I mean, you might end up seeing your father, husband or a close friend up on the screen. That would be exciting. But then, I imagine the excitement would be closely followed by a heavy feeling in the pit of your stomach seeing where they are and what they're doing. When Japan entered the war, Pera hightailed it for home, keen to record what was likely to be the first real direct threat to Australia from a foreign force. His first assignment was to accompany the men of Kanga Force in their operations around Wao and Salamoa, obviously before they were taken by the Japanese. Kanga Force was a rapidly formed guerrilla unit, first used for reconnaissance work and later conducting offensive operations. I really should do an episode on them one day, don't let me forget. It was shortly after this period that Pera embarked on the mission which would eventually make him stand out amongst his journalistic peers. The Battle of Kokoda had begun and along with journalists Chester Wilmot and Osmo White, Damien prepared to take on the Owen Stanley Rangers. Only problem was, before they were able to set off, Pera was struck down by fever. For days he was barely able to move out of his bed. He was not a well young man. But eventually he began to recover and before he was even anywhere near fully recovered, he was on the track with Wilmot and White. I've described the conditions on the Kakata track in previous episodes and pointed out how difficult it was just to walk on that track over mountains and through the gullies. 
add a pack and a rifle and supplies to keep a soldier alive, and it became torturous. Now, Damien didn't carry a rifle, of course, but he did have to carry his cameras and rolls of film. Remember them? Film rolls? For the younger listeners out there, back in the old days, prior to digital cameras, so, you know, anything pre-mid to late 90s, rolls of tape were the only methods of capturing footage. If it was exposed to the light before being processed, it would all be ruined. The tape wasn't real fond of moisture either, which in the oppressive humidity along the track made things very difficult. He had to carry most of it himself, as the native carriers were in desperately short supply and were needed to carry essential war material. So the newsman's trek was not an easy one, but some of the footage gained has gone on to become synonymous with the fighting on the Kokoda track. Images of exhausted diggers slogging their way up muddy slopes, the native bearers carrying wounded men, and probably my favourite, the image of a proud Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Honor addressing his troops of the 39th Militia Battalion upon their arrival at Minari after bearing the brunt of the Japanese attacks at Kokoda Village and the epic Battle of Isuraba. He finally made it to the forward areas of operations at about the same time as the Battle of Isuraba was being fought, although I've not been able to confirm if he managed to get any footage of the fighting. What I do know, though, is that with the withdrawal from Isuraba, Para, Wilmot and White joined the men heading back along the track. Damien had rolls and rolls of film secured in his pack, and we can only guess what images were on those films, because he was unable to carry that load and keep ahead of the Japanese. He began to throw away some of the reels, keeping only those that he felt were the most important. He was offered the services of some native carriers to help get his film out, but he wasn't about to use such a valuable resource when there were wounded men that needed to be evacuated. He was eventually persuaded, a bit further down the track, to use a couple of carriers, and so at least some of the footage was saved. He eventually returned to Australia and was appalled at just how ignorant the general public was as to the conditions their men were experiencing. And he also wanted to set the record straight about the fighting quality and courage of the men after their own commander, Blamey, basically called them cowards. And so the film, Kokoda Frontline, was born. It was released on the 18th of September 1942 and Damien himself introduces the film and leaves the audience in no doubt as to how he feels about the men in New Guinea. If you watch none of the other films that I mention, I insist that you head forth to the War Memorial website, or even YouTube, and watch Kokoda Frontline. Not only is it important from a military history perspective, but also from an Australian cinematic history perspective. It's often said that Damien Perra was the first Australian to receive an Oscar, or Academy Award, or whatever it's called. But this is not quite true. The award wasn't given to Perra, but to the producer, Ken Hall, for a distinctive achievement in documentary production. But either way, Kokoda Frontline was the first Australian film to receive that award. His next foray onto the battlefield was when he joined the 2nd 2nd Independent Company, which at that stage was fighting a guerrilla war on Timor. Some of this footage deviates from Pera's usual style, as it's obviously staged. But there is enough combat footage that you can tell it's a Pera film. The footage from this period produced the four-minute film titled Men of Timor. It is a testament to his growing fame that the men of the 2nd 2nd Independent Company are reported to have delayed their attack until Pera had arrived to film it. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds pretty good, so I choose to believe it. From there, after joining some RAAF gentlemen to again film the war in the air through the windscreen of a bomber, Pera headed to Salamoa to capture that campaign in what was arguably his best work, which became the film Assault on Salamoa. During the filming, he was again at the pointy end, filming the battle from the front. 
It's also where he captured what is probably his most iconic and best-known footage, that of Sergeant Gordon Eyre of the 58-59th Battalion in pouring rain helping Private William Johnson of the same unit to cross a creek. Johnson had been wounded in the head, shoulder and arm by a Japanese grenade. Native carriers could also have been seen carrying loads across the river up to the fighting men. I've put a colourised photo from the film up on the website. But despite Pera's undoubted contribution to documenting Australia's war, the bureaucratic obstinacy was about to push him away. Why? Well, he had the audacity to ask for a pay rise, basically. In a letter dated 3rd of May 1943 to Mr Allen of the Department of Information, Damien stated that his current allowance of 25 shillings a week is inadequate to allow him to perform his duties. I assume that it was 25 shillings. I'm a decimal baby, so please forgive me if I'm wrong. He states, When living in cities or towns in Australia, other than Darwin, the daily cost of first-class hotel accommodation is between 17.6 and 25 per day. The messing fee in Moresby is 30 per week. On top of this is the necessary cost of refreshments to servicemen when they do some out-of-the-way service job that the cameraman may get his pictures. I have been refused reimbursement of lost personal gear. While filming Kokoda Frontline, I was obliged to abandon my sleeping bag, amongst other things, and asked that the department replace it or equivalent value, but was told in writing that the department would not do so. End quote. So basically what he's saying is that the cost of providing the footage the department wants is exceeding the wage they pay him to collect it. And when the inevitable loss of equipment occurs, the department, from the safety and comfort of their city officers, refused to reimburse the loss. Pera goes on to say, Three years, four months ago, I sailed with the first convoy of the AIF as cameraman for the DOI. At that time, I was given the pay and expenses of an army captain. On my present rate of pay, I am receiving less now in salary and expenses than I was three years ago. This, despite the fact that the public service has recognised cost of living for its other employees and added it onto their pay. Despite the fact that I have been far longer with the department and on more battlefronts than any other cameraman now employed by them. End quote. He goes on in much the same vein, but the crux of the matter is that he hasn't received a pay rise in three years despite one being given to the public servants who remain safe at home. And he was receiving basically the same pay as other cameramen who didn't have the experience and haven't provided the department with as much quality footage as he had. In the end, despite a bit of back and forth, and even with the letter of support from the commander of the 2nd 3rd Independent Commando Company to none other than the Prime Minister, the Department of Information refused to come to the party. And on 25th of May 1943, Pera officially tendered his resignation from the department, giving three months' notice, listing his reasons as The department refuses to provide me with any but a totally inadequate living and general expenses allowance. The department, under its present inflexible system, does not regard me as of any greater value to it than the worst and most inexperienced photographer, despite the fact that I have been with the department longer than any other cameraman, have worked on more battlefronts than any other photographer, and have given it material for a number of films which have won world praise. Under the department system, my position can never be improved, even should the war last another 10 years. End quote. And that was that. Pera was no longer Australia's premier war photographer. For the sake of saving a few pounds, and for not buckling to the reasonable requests of a mere employee, the Department of Information, in typical Australian bureaucrat style, lost one of our greatest assets. 
But where did that leave Pera? He was now out of a job. But not for long. His fame had brought him to the notice of many production companies, and by August 1943, he was working for the United States Paramount News. For the short term, he remained in New Guinea to film air raids on Japanese positions. He took a period of leave, and in March 1944, he married his longtime sweetheart, Marie Cotter, in Sydney. They only got to enjoy a short period of married bliss because the island war was hotting up and the US Marines were hopping from island to island, pushing the Japanese out of their conquests. Damien was assigned by Paramount to cover this campaign. He first filmed the Marines during the battle for Guam. The material he captured during that campaign saw him awarded the Headliner Award from the American Journalists Association. Unfortunately, by the time that came around, Damien's luck had run out. Pera went ashore with the US Marines during the bloody assault on Peleliu in September 1944. On the 17th of September, two days after the initial landings, Damien and the Sydney Bulletin correspondent John Brennan were with the Marines as they advanced across a peninsula behind US tanks. Keeping his commitment to film the faces of men as they went into combat, Pera was walking in front of the Marines, facing backwards and filming. A burst of machine gun fire caught him and he was killed instantly. As the United Press correspondent Richard Johnson said, he lay amidst the bodies of the Marines he had gone to photograph. Other colleagues stated after the war that the decision he made right back at the start to film from the front meant he was doomed to not survive. It's quite likely that he knew this from the start. The courage it must have taken to capture the human element of war with the knowledge that he couldn't survive it forever must have been up there with any soldier ordered to make an attack. It was initially buried in a shallow grave on Peleliu but was later exhumed and relocated to the Makassar War Cemetery in Indonesia in 1946. In 1961, he was moved again to Ambon War Cemetery, where he remains today. When it comes to people who have helped shape our understanding of Australians in war, there is little doubt that Damien Pera is up there with Charles Bean. What Bean did for the first AIF in writing, Damien did for the second AIF on film. He brought the war and its human face to families waiting at home. Osmar White, his companion during the hellish retreat down the Kokoda Track, described him as long, stooped, black-headed, sallow-faced and smiling with a bubbling bass hoot of a laugh. But perhaps the last word should go to his other mate on the Kokoda Track, Chester Wilmot. He was such a fine man as well as a brilliant photographer. He made the camera speak as no other man I've ever known and his films gave an immortal portrait of the Australian soldier of this war. End quote. I can't improve on that. I'll catch you for the next one. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.